Judges chapter 2. Judges 2, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 201. Judges chapter 2. We're going to begin today by reading verses 6 through 10. Judges chapter 2. Follow along as I read verses 6 through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went, each to his inheritance, to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. May God give us ears to hear his word. A little saying you may have heard before is that the church is always just one generation away from extinction. You ever heard that saying before? The church is always just one generation away from extinction. Therefore, it's the duty of this generation to pass on the faith to the next generation. And if we fail in that, the church could conceivably go out of existence in a single generation. Now, this is not just a nice little cliche, but we see this very thing take place in the Bible in the passage I just read. If you look at the passage, all the days of Joshua, the people of Israel served the Lord. So long as Joshua and the elders who were around him were leading Israel, the people were generally faithful and obedient. But then you come to the very next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, and all of a sudden everything is in chaos. If you've read Judges, you'll know this. The book is horrific. It's characterized by immorality, perversity, idolatry, murder. It's absolute anarchy. If you know Judges, the key verse of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You read that and you wonder, what in the world went wrong? How did Israel go from being generally obedient and faithful to being completely immoral and wicked in one generation? Well, Judges 2.10 gives us our answer. Look at it. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That key phrase right there, there arose a generation who did not know the Lord, that explains it. For whatever reason, the previous generation failed in passing on the faith to the next generation. The parents, the grandparents, they did not teach their children and the grandchildren about the things of God. And in one simple generation, that unleashed all of the carnage and havoc and chaos we see in the book of Judges. Now, grievously, we see something nearly identical taking place in America. Increasingly, America is looking more and more like the book of Judges and less and less like the book of Joshua. Increasingly, America is characterized by immorality, violence, idolatry, murder. I think the key verse of Judges might as well be a description of America in 2022. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Now, certainly the reasons for America's moral and spiritual collapse, they are many and they are complex. I don't want to oversimplify a very complicated situation. I think there are several factors that the devil is sort of using to to, to bring about what we're seeing But nonetheless, one of the main reasons why America is experiencing what we're experiencing goes back to Judges 2.10. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. 
Christian parents and Christian grandparents are not succeeding in passing on the faith to their kids and grandkids. And no doubt that is playing a major role in our decline. And truth be told, I am profoundly concerned for the children of our church. Now, this has been a burden of mine since I got here. I'm profoundly concerned for my own children. Will they walk with the Lord? Will they continue to call themselves Christians 25 years from now? Will this church continue to exist 50 years from now? That burdens me. Well, to address this dilemma, to fight this tendency, to hopefully raise awareness, raise concern, to equip parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, to pass on the faith to the next generation, we're maintaining a tradition here that we've been continuing for several years now. Just like we begin every new year with a sermon on personal Bible reading, for several years now, we begin, a, uh, begin the new year with a sermon on family discipleship, on communicating the gospel to the next generation. And given our current climate, uh, we need this now more than ever. To organize our time this morning, I want you to consider two critical questions with me. Two critical questions pertaining to the evangelization and discipleship of our kids. If you don't want the church in America to go extinct, if you don't want our church to go extinct... Consider with me carefully these two critical questions pertaining to the evangelization and discipleship of kids. Question number one, who's really shaping and influencing the church's children? Who's really shaping and influencing the church's children? When it comes to forming the main beliefs, convictions, ideas of the next generation, who's succeeding here? Well, to begin our thinking on this question, I want you to consider some statistics with me. And these ought to startle you. In fact, that's my point here. That's my goal in this first point, to wake you up, to frighten you, to hopefully move you to action. But based on the results of many surveys interviewing thousands of American professing Christians, here's what they discovered. One out of nine young people who grow up in a Christian household completely abandon Christianity. Now, you might see that and think, oh, that's not that big of a deal. One out of nine, that's sad. Uh, but what about the other eight out of nine? Well, let's take a look at those. Another two out of ten who grew up in a Christian household, they continue to describe themselves as Christian, but they become spiritually eclectic, meaning they attempt to design their own spirituality, which blends Christianity with other beliefs. And honestly, that's probably the big challenge. The big challenge for our young people is probably not so much atheism as this sort of blending of paganism and pantheism and just sort of uh, picking whatever you want to believe. Another four out of ten young people who grew up in a Christian household, they continue to identify as Christian, but they cease all local church involvement. So they're functionally non-Christians, at least. So what this means is that in total, about three out of ten young people who grow up in a Christian home, they remain committed to biblical Christianity and the local church into adulthood. To put that in a percentage, what does that mean? That means 70% of kids who grow up in church will abandon biblical Christianity after high school. 70%. Now, by the grace of God, our church has been blessed with many children. I get this comment often from visitors. Man, for a church your size, you've got an awful lot of kids there. That's great to hear, praise God. But now imagine 70% of the children of our church completely disappearing after high school. Imagine 70% of these kids are walk, walking away from the Christian faith, just abandoning everything that we've held dear here for years. That ought to break your heart. Maybe may next week before we dismiss for children's church, look around at the kids and, and then think, 70% of these kids disappearing? That's tragic. And here's what they've discovered. The kids that leave Christianity, after high school, it's not primarily secular college. 
a lot of people think that. They think these kids were good, faithful Christians growing up. They believe the gospel, they believe the Bible, but then they go off to secular college and then they lose their faith. That's not the case at all, or at least most of the time. Most of the time, the kids that leave the faith after high school, they actually checked out at like 12 or 13. They stopped buying into this stuff a long time ago. They just kept coming to church because their parents made them. And then when they get off to college, they're actually free to do what they wanted to do for years, quit church. Now, obviously, this begs the question, why? Why are so many kids who are raised in Christian home, Christian families, abandoning the gospel? What, what explains this? Now, many would say public school. Christians going to public schools, learning about evolution, learning about moral relativism, about critical race theory, that's why so many kids are abandoning the faith. Now, certainly, there's a lot that's taught in public schools that contradicts the Bible, and we need to be deeply concerned about that. And if you know me, I am deeply concerned about that. However, I have come to believe that there's something that's influencing our kids far, far more than public school, and that's media consumption and entertainment. Media consumption and entertainment. I think that's doing far more to influence our kids and, frankly, our values uh, than any other source. I'm kind of reminded of my own public school. I, I went to public school until I graduated from high school, and most of the time I was just kind of staring out the window and not paying attention. What was influencing me was what I was watching on TV, listening to on the radio. That's what really shaped me. And I'm afraid that's taking place in a lot of our lives. And what do we mean by media? Think about it. This, this includes everything. TV and movies, Facebook and Instagram, Hulu, Netflix, YouTube, Amazon Prime, NBC, ABC, Fox. These are, to our culture, what, say, pastors, professors, rabbis, shamans are to other cultures. They're teaching us how to think about the most important issues in life. To illustrate this, I want you to think about a particular issue. It's the issue of transgenderism. I grew up in the 1980s, and when I was a kid, I had no idea what transgenderism even was. Um, and I don't think my experience was in any way unusual. Occasionally, you'll hear, you'd hear this joke about a man trapped in a woman's body, but it was only a joke. You know, you couldn't conceive of somebody trying to medically change their body into a different gender. Well, you fast forward to today, 40 years later, and transgenderism's everywhere. I mean, literally every night in the news, there's another story about it. It's discussed in schools. We've got celebrities that have come out as transgender. And now, according to some polls, the majority of Americans, they approve of it and support transgenderism. And those who disapprove are bigots. So what happened here? How did Americans change their minds so quickly? When you think about it, how was transgenderism portrayed in the media? While it was nowhere to be seen in the 80s and 90s, all of a sudden, uh, characters started populating their shows. And again, celebrities came out as transgender. And you, you think about the protagonists and antagonists and storylines. Within one generation, everything changed. Now, this is not just my impression. I found a formal study that looked at this, and I want to share with you quickly some of the, the uh, results of this. Washington State University. Uh, they released a paper recently entitled Transgender Depictions in Media Improve Perception of Transgender People and Policies. And listen to what they say here. Gillig and her team specifically examined the impact of exposure to a TV storyline in a June 2015 uh, on the USA Network's show Royal Pains, which I'd never heard of before I saw this paper, where the episode featured a transgender teen experiencing health complications as she transitioned from male to female. 500 participants answered questions related to the attitudes towards transgender individuals, along with revealing emotions experienced while watching the episode. 
They also surveyed a control group who had not seen the episode about their attitudes toward the transgender community. Results showed that respondents who saw the Royal Pains episode, look at that, it's a single episode. We're not talking about hundreds of episodes over years. One episode featuring a transgender adolescent had more positive attitudes towards transgender people and policies compared to Royal Pains viewers who did not see the particular storyline. Similarly, those exposed to media coverage of transgender individuals in the months prior to the Royal Pains episode had, had more supportive attitudes. These findings illustrate the importance of transgender media portrayals, even more minor ones, in influencing media consumers' attitudes towards transgender people and related policies. These results demonstrate the power of the media to influence attitudes towards transgender people and policy issues. It can also reflect that recent media visibility of transgender individuals, even if it's brief, could have a far-reaching impact, such as affecting public perception of groups within the LGBTQ community. I know it's a lot of words, but did you follow that? One episode did a lot to change people's minds. Imagine hundreds of episodes and years of this sort of media consumption. Media is designed to influence you, and that's why Americans change their minds on this issue. And the same could be said and demonstrated with countless other issues. Illicit drug use and drug dealing, prostitution, viewing suicide as a good thing, abortion, cohabitation, polygamy, euthanasia, atheism, even witchcraft and the occult. These and so many more issues are found in our most popular TV, movie, uh, Facebook pages. People are being influenced by the media without even realizing it. Now consider a couple more fearful statistics with me. U.S. teens spend an average of more than seven hours per day, seven days a week, on screen media for entertainment. It's an awful lot of time. And that does not include time spent using screens for school and homework. Now think about this. Most church-attending parents, they expose their children to one to two hours of biblical education a week. Now if you're doing the math here, you're quickly figuring out something's not going to work here. If you're getting sort of indoctrinated for 50 hours a week by media, but then spending one or two hours thinking about God's word, it's just not going to work. Very involved parents, they might discuss biblical matters with their kids for 15 minutes a day. Maybe around the dinner table, you talk about your Bible study, something like that. So just, just think of this. The world gets 50 plus hours a week, and that does not even include public school. You throw that in, and, and it's overwhelming every week to influence our children. So just think about it here. Who is really shaping the way that our kids think and act? Who's really succeeding here in forming the next generation? We should not be surprised at all that 70% of our church's kids abandon the gospel if this is what they're drinking for years and years on end. Now, in light of this, you might be thinking, are you telling me that i got to quit watching all TV, all movies, Get rid of Facebook, cut the cord on the internet. Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. Instead, let me quickly give you four essential keys for evaluating media. Use media, but use it with discernment. And here quickly are four essential keys for evaluating media as a Christian. First, never forget that all media has a message. Never, ever forget all media has a message. And clearly this is true with movies, something that we do at our home. We'll watch a movie and then afterwards sort of have a debrief. Like, what messages were in that movie? How do those compare with Scripture? I realize this is true not only with movies, but clearly with the news. A lot I mean, more and more, the news has an agenda that it's trying to sell you. This is even true with, the, say, the Weather Channel. 
why they cover what they cover, the ads in the sidebar. All media has a message, a message designed to influence you. In a way, media is preaching gospels, gospels designed to usually lead you astray. Because of that, second, evaluate the media you consume, uh, you consume with discernment. Evaluate the media you consume with discernment. Keep your brain engaged. Now, this is not our tendency. We want to just sort of kick back and enjoy this movie, enjoy this TV show passively. Uh, but, but that's how we get led astray. Keep your mind on. Evaluate what you're hearing. Uh, think, is this message biblical? How does this contrast with Scripture? Third, realize media specializes in manipulating your emotions. This is sort of their, their thing, manipulating your emotions. And this is how the media gets you to approve of the very things that you hate. They'll tell you moving stories, they'll use moving pictures, moving music, or they'll even get you laughing. And next thing you know, you like this character that just six months ago you didn't like. I recently heard something that was kind of startling. It was attributed to an old actor giving advice to younger actors. I couldn't find the source, but it goes this way. Get people laughing, and while their mouths are open, pour in your ideology. Think about that. Get people laughing, and while their mouths are open, pour in your ideology. That's exactly how emotional manipulation works. And that's true not only with humor, but with moving music, emotional stories, how they portray protagonists and antagonists. Again, they kind of fly in under the radar, engage your emotions, get you to feel a certain way, and then before you know it, you're drawn to the very things that you're supposed to hate. And if you find yourself, realize this, if you find yourself, because of some TV show, comedian, YouTube influencer, whatever, being drawn to things that are manifestly unbiblical, that's the time that you've got to separate yourself from that person, that thing. Cut the cord. I remember there was a show, my wife and I used to watch these old British things on PBS, um, and there was a show that, that, that regularly portrayed an adulterous relationship as a good thing. And it wasn't just one one-off episode, but it regularly it, it made you want the characters co to commit adultery. And eventually, I said, "We can't we, we can't be watching this anymore," because again, it, this is clearly the message here. They want you to celebrate them committing adultery. And again, it's PBS, so it's rather you know innocuous in that sense. But that message is manifestly unbiblical, so we didn't watch it anymore. Here's one last essential for evaluating media: carefully limit the amount of time you consume media and aim for at least as much biblical instruction in a week as media consumption. Carefully limit the amount of time you consume media and aim for at least as much biblical instruction in a week as media consumption. Do this only if you don't want to be led astray. Maybe even do sort of a, a, an observation. You chronicle, how many hours am I spending watching TV? How many hours am I spend, uh, spending scrolling through Facebook? You might be surprised. And then contrast that with how many hours am I spending, say, in prayer, Bible reading, listening to sermons, reading good Christian books. If you do sort of a survey like that and discover your time in the media is way out of line, you cut back and try to get as much Bible in your mind and your heart as the world's getting into your mind and heart. Well, that's who is shaping our children. Let's talk about who should be shaping and influencing our church's kids, who really ought to play the primary role here. Now, I'm going to tell you up front that I am on a mission here to challenge the way that most Christian, Christians think in this area. I'm, I don't try and hide this at all. I'm trying to challenge the way that you think on this issue. 
to really get down to it, here's the thesis that I'm going to try to you with. I'm going to try to persuade you that the Christian family and not the local church is ultimately responsible for discipling children. The Christian family and not the local church is ultimately responsible for discipling children. Now, notice that word ultimately there. I'm not at all saying that church is insignificant or unnecessary or irrelevant. That's not at all what I'm saying. Obviously, I love the church and, you know, you know given my life to serving the church. But what I'm saying here is who is finally responsible? Who is ultimately responsible for children hearing the gospel, learning about godly living? Who will give unique account at the judgment seat of Christ? I'm going to try to show you from Scripture that it's parents and not primarily pastors and Sunday school teachers. To kind of frame this discussion, let me show you a diagram. And I know that I've shown you this diagram many times over the years, but it's helpful to be reminded of these things. This is the way that most contemporary American Christians view the relationship of the home and the church in the evangelization and discipleship of kids. This is how most Christians that you'll run into think. In this view, you've got the local church at the center, the family or the home on the periphery. In this model, the local church plays the primary role. You learn most of your Bible, most of your godly living in Sunday school, VBS, children's church, that sort of thing. The home then plays a sort of supplemental role. Any, anything you learn at home is sort of extra. Uh, you know, kind of, sure, it's helpful, but, but it's kind of like extra compared to what you're learning at church. You think about it, I think, go back to that diagram real quick. I think we got this idea from the way that we usually educate our children. You think about how do we educate our children in reading, writing, arithmetic? We primarily send them off to school. And then, you know, if they learn any reading, writing, and arithmetic at home, awesome, but they're primarily going to get it from school. I think we've taken that and applied that to the evangelization and the discipleship of our kids. Well, I don't think this is biblical at all, and I don't think it's even practically helpful. You think about it, how much time do you spend at church? Typically, maybe two or three hours a week. How much time do you spend at home? Like over 100 hours a week? To think that you're going to get the job done in clearly communicating the gospel, persuading people to believe the gospel, uh, teaching a comprehensive biblical worldview, uh, persuading people that it's good to walk with Jesus in spite of suffering, you're going to get that done in like two hours a week? It's just not going to work. But worse than that, I also think it's not according to Scripture. It's contrary to the Bible. Let me illustrate for you what I think the Bible teaches on this question. According to the Bible, the home is at the center. Uh, so if you were to ask little Billy, little Susie, where did you learn most of the Bible, most about Jesus, his first, her first answer would be from mom and dad, grandma and grandpa. The church then provides a strong supplemental role. It, it kind of fits in, but again, it's not the primary player here. The primary player is the home with the church playing a supplemental role, a supporting role. Now you think about it, in this model, if kids aren't hearing the gospel, if they're not learning godly living, Really, the burden falls on the parents to figure out, what, what, am I, what am I not doing? What am I doing wrong? And therefore, the church is to equip parents to better evangelize and disciple their kids. You see, right there, that's, that, that's sort of the big difference here. With the other model, if the kids aren't learning the gospel, learning about Jesus, you change the church. You get cooler music, you get a pastor with you know, a mohawk, something like that. In, in this model, the, uh, the role is to equip the parents to better evangelize and disciple their kids. You see? Now, in this second model of church, they might hire a youth pastor, they might get cooler music, they might develop better programs, and that's all fine. But again, the primary role is to help the parents do their job in discipling and evangelizing their kids. And I believe that if we succeed in doing that, we'll have a far higher rate of children continuing to walk with the Lord into adulthood. 
Now, let me see if I can argue from Scripture that this is indeed the case, that it's the Christian family and not the local church who has the primary role here. Really, at the end of the day, what the Bible teaches is all that matters. These diagrams and charts are colorful and all, but they, they really don't have any authority over us. What does the Bible teach? And to try to persuade you of this, I want to quickly go through five passages. We'll, we'll only spend like 30 seconds on each of these, but five passages that I think clearly teach the priority of the home. By the way, if you want to go into any deeper detail on these, I've preached on this topic many times. Some of these sermons I've gone into greater depth on these passages. Just go to our website, find the second sermon from each year. That's typically when we talk about this topic. Um, we'll go into greater detail in those sermons. But quickly for this morning, five passages teaching the centrality of the home. First, Genesis 1 through 4. Genesis 1 through 4. Now just think about Genesis 1 through 4. You'll remember back in the beginning, God makes Adam... And before he makes Eve, he gives Adam the command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you remember that? It's before Eve's there. So how is Eve supposed to know she's not supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Adam's to teach this to her. Well, then you know the story. Adam and Eve, they sin, they disobey, they get kicked out of the garden, and you got Cain and Abel. And what if, what's the first thing we see Cain and Abel doing? Worshiping God through sacrifices. Where did they learn that? Didn't learn it in Sunday school. Sunday school didn't exist. Didn't learn it from the priests. They didn't exist. They learned it in the home. One way that you could think about this, Adam was, in a way, the first pastor in the history of the world. He's pastoring his family, teaching them the gospel, teaching them the things of God. The same thing could be said of Noah, Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. In those days, there were no priests, no Levites, no bishops, pastors, anything like that. It was fathers primarily communicating the truth to their children in the context of the home. Here's a second passage, Deuteronomy 6. We'll actually talk more about this passage next week, Lord willing. Deuteronomy 6, let me just quickly read it for you and make a couple of comments. The Lord says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall teach these commandments diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Just a couple of quick comments on that passage. First, you'll notice the emphasis on teaching the things of God and the by and by of life. You know, really, that's the main context where we learn about God. Sure, Sunday school sermons are incredibly important. I'm not diminishing their significance at all. But so much more is just caught as you're chatting around the dinner table, as you're mowing the lawn, as you're baking cookies. That's where so much is communicated about God and his plan. But additionally, the other thing, you'll notice again, the primary context here is in the home. You hanging out with your kids and teaching them this and that, that's primarily where the faith is going to be passed on. Again, Lord willing, we'll talk more about that passage next week. Quickly, third passage, Psalm 78. We read part of this as our call to worship this morning. But in Psalm 78, 5, listen to this. The Lord established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Now, if you listen carefully to that passage, there are at least three generations in view. Fathers teach their children, but then it doesn't end there. The children teach the children that are yet to be unborn, who then hope, put their hope in God. Can you see from that passage again the way in which the home is imagined as the primary place where the truth of God is passed down? 
Now, something that's important to know is that when we come to Psalm 78, the entire temple sacrificial system existed at that time. You couldn't say the same about the early chapters of Genesis. You know, Adam, Abraham, there weren't priests and prophets kind of running around Israel. Uh, no temple to go to. But in Psalm 78, you could go to the temple and be instructed by the priests. You could go and watch the sacrifices. There were prophets going up and down Israel prophesying. But nonetheless, even after the institution of those offices, still the home is the primary place where the truth of God is taught. Quickly, a fourth passage. Malachi 2.15. I mean, you might want to turn to this one, because this is not so familiar as the other ones. Malachi 2.15, and this passage is answering the question, why does God give families children? You ever wonder about that? Why, why does God give families? Is it just because kids are cute and they're fun to play with? Uh, is it because when you, they become teenagers, you can turn them into slaves or something like that? Why does God give children to families? Look at Malachi 2.15. The passage is talking about marriage in context. Malachi 2.15. Did not he, talking about God, make, and it's talking about the man and his wife, did not he make the man and wife one with a portion of the spirit in their union? It says a lot about marriage, by the way. We won't explore that, but that's fascinating. And what was God seeking from this marriage? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Look at your Bible. Why does God give families children? Sure, they're fun to play with, you know, no doubt there. Sure, they're helpful around the house. But clearly, the reason why God gives parents children is so that they would raise them up to be godly offspring. You see that? And again, not so much the prophets and priests, though they existed, not Sunday school teachers or pastors, but families raising up their kids to be godly offspring. One final passage, Ephesians 6.4. Ephesians 6.4. And this passage is noteworthy because it's New Testament church scripture. The others were all, old, and you could argue the others only apply to Israel or something like that, which I don't think is true. But you could argue that this one here is New Testament, church scripture, and yet it's saying the exact same thing as all the previous passages. In Ephesians 6.4, God's Spirit says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, we've talked about this passage many times from this pulpit. But have you ever noticed the way that it does not say Sunday school teachers? And it doesn't say pastors? And get this, it doesn't even say parents. But what does it say? Fathers. Fathers. Let that sink in. Now, why does it say fathers? Does, that, does it say fathers because mothers are irrelevant or unimportant? Not at all. Mothers are incredibly important, vital, and we praise God for them. And yet throughout Scripture, you do see this pattern of the father functioning as the head of the household, more than that, basically as the pastor of his family. I know I've said that many times from this pulpit, but fathers are to consider themselves the pastor of their family, and then those fathers who do a pretty good job pastoring their families are to be entrusted with pastoring churches. Now put these passages together. We've looked at just five, and we've obviously looked at them very quickly, but we looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've looked at the Pentateuch, at the Psalms, at the Prophets, at the book of Ephesians. We've looked at passages that apply to individuals, to the nation of Israel, and to the church. Do you see a common denominator here? you see any similarities? All of them are teaching the same thing, that it is the family, not the local church, that has the ultimate responsibility for evangelizing and discipling kids. Again, the local church is incredibly important, and I wouldn't be here today if that weren't the case. But when it comes to the main context, the primary context where the gospel is to be passed on, where discipleship is to take place, it is the Christian home. 
And we need to say this if we want to be a biblical church. Now, believe it or not, but this was the predominant view in church history until relatively recently. For the vast majority of church history, most Bible-believing Christians understood that it's primarily the home where godly living and the gospel is to be learned. It's only been really since World War II. And I speculate that what happened was so many men had to go off to war, so many families were left without the head of the household, that, that other things came in to sort of fill the void. And that was maybe necessary during a world war, but we've sort of kept that model till today, and that's not particularly healthy. But if you were to say, get in a time machine and go back to the early church or the medieval church, the Reformation, the Puritan era, the pilgrims, colonial America, the 1800s, even to 1920, what you wouldn't find in churches are youth pastors. Now, having said that, I'm not at all whole-scale hating on youth pastors. We used to have a youth pastor here, and we appreciated his ministry, and it'd be great to have another youth pastor here. I'm just trying to illustrate how they thought about things differently in previous generations. Christians understood what the Bible taught, that the family is the primary context where these things are to be passed on. Now, one last point I'd emphasize here. Don't imagine that what I'm saying only applies to these sort of perfect, in-structure, nuclear families with a godly dad and a godly mom and just, you know, perfect godly children. Some of you might be thinking this. You know, you might be imagining, what about my family? My husband's not a Christian. Or my wife died. Or my kids are just, you know, hellions. You know, I didn't come to faith till last month. You know, how are we going to actually work this out? Realize this is still the truth of the Bible. We just need to think creatively about how we're going to apply it in our different contexts. So let's say your husband is not a Christian. If that's the case, you, Christian mom, you'll have to take the lead here and rely maybe on extra help from your local church. Uh, maybe some of the pastors or deacons, maybe some of the older ladies in your church, but nonetheless, the, the home has to be the primary place where kids are hearing the gospel and learning the Bible. Say your kids have grown up and left the house and you just made an awful mess of this. You just didn't even realize this for years. Well, so long as there is life, there is hope. And you can still say, talk on the phone, uh, send emails, recommend this or that book. You know, don't be obviously obnoxious about it. But you can still do things to encourage godliness in the, in the next generation, even if they have left the house. Additionally, I think husbands and wives should do this sort of thing, even if they don't have kids. They can read the Bible together, pray together. Uh, maybe they got nieces and nephews that they can talk to about Jesus when they come over. You know, maybe have good Christian books on the shelves that they can read when they're just hanging out. Same thing if you're a grandmother. Say you're a grandmother and you're, you know, you, your husband's dead or something like that. You can have good Christian story Bibles that you can read to your kids or the grandkids when they come over. Hopefully you're getting the idea of what I'm trying to describe here. I'd encourage even college students to begin this sort of thing in their dorms. Realize that's your household right now. I know I've talked a lot about parents and children, but in one sense, if you're a college student in a dorm, uh, your buddies, your dorm mates, those are your household. So do what you can to encourage them to walk with the Lord, uh, to commend the gospel both by word and deed. Well, like I said, I am on a mission here to challenge the way that contemporary Christians think about the relationship of the home and the church in the evangelization and discipleship of kids. And I hope I've persuaded you that it really ought to be the Christian home and not primarily the local church who's ultimately responsible for communicating the things of God to the next generation. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, this is great and all, but how do you actually do this? Now, what does this look like practically? And I, and I know that a lot of dads especially feel that way. They're like, all right, I, I buy this. I can see this in Scripture. But what does it really look like to practically put this into practice?
Well, if you're asking that, please come back next week. For next week, we're going to address this question thoroughly. We're going to talk about motivations to keep going, uh, practical things that you can do to, to more and more communicate the gospel and the word of God to the next generation. But in conclusion, some of you might be wondering, why are you making such a big deal out of this? I mean, you just spent a 40-minute sermon, 40-something minute sermon, uh, talking about reaching and teaching the next generation. I mean, aren't you making an awful big deal out of this? I mean, just let the kids flourish. They're like flowers, and they'll just blossom without you. Well, here's the reason for that. We believe that the truth that saves and the truth that transforms, it's not found within us. It must be communicated to us from outside. Let me say that again. This is huge for making sense of our world. The truth that saves, the truth that transforms, it's not found within you. It's not found in your heart. You're not just going to figure this stuff out by looking within. It must be communicated. It must be brought to you so that you first understand it and then embrace it with faith for your own. And if that doesn't take place, you cannot be saved and you will not be transformed more and more into the image of God's Son. Again, this is one of the most fundamental ways our world and the Bible differs here. The world thinks the problems are out there. In culture, in society, in politics, the answers are in here. And I just got to listen to my heart. The Bible reverses that. The Bible's going to say, you know, the biggest problem is in your heart. It's because you love darkness rather than light. It's because you do not want God ruling over you. You do not want to live God's way. Therefore, the fundamental change is not so much external, but internal. I need to be born again. The Bible tells us that we've all been made to know God. The longer I'm a pastor, the more I rejoice in that simple sentence. You were made to know God. Not to waste your life on video games and TV and movies, though, truth be told, I sometimes do that myself. But you were made to know God, to have a relationship with him. And out of that relationship with God, you find your life's meaning, significance, and purpose. And yet, the Bible tells us that we have sinned and rebelled against our Creator. We try to live the way we want to live, regardless of how God designed life to be lived. We break God's laws every single day, and most of the time it doesn't even bother us very much if we don't get caught. Now, because God is a righteous God, he will punish us for our sins, somewhat in this life, but far, far more in the life to come. And yet that's exactly when God, in his great love for us, he acted. He took the initiative to reconcile himself to us. God the Father sent God the Son down from heaven. God the Son took on flesh as a little baby. He's given the name Jesus. Jesus, like we read in Luke, he grows in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. He's perfectly obedient, both to the Heavenly Father and to his parents. Then in his mid-30s, he has this relatively brief ministry, ministry of teaching, performing miracles, casting out demons. But then he dies on the cross. And realize, as he's dying on the cross, he's suffering the wrath of God in our place. The judgment I deserve for my rebellion, it falls on Jesus on the cross in my place as my substitute. He dies, he's buried, but three days later, God the Father raises Jesus from the dead, demonstrating that our hope is not in vain. And now, in response, here's what God's calling you. He's calling you to turn from your sin, embrace Jesus, be forgiven. It's really that simple. Turn from your sin. Stop running from God. Stop trying to rebel, trying to live as if you're your own God. Turn back to God. Rely on Jesus. Embrace his death and resurrection. Be permanently forever made right with God. That's the gospel we must personally embrace in order to be saved, and that's the gospel we must pass on to the next generation if the church is to continue to exist in America.
So in conclusion, I beg you to trust Jesus now. Man or woman, boy or girl, this is the only hope you have of being made right with your creator, of being forgiven of your sins, and of experiencing the eternal life you were designed for. Turn from your sins. Embrace Jesus right now and experience eternal life. As always, if any of you need to discuss these things further, would like clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today as he's revealed in the gospel and today begin enjoying that life you were designed for. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for the way you have given to us in it everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, this duty to communicate the gospel to the next generation, it is a tall order. It's, it's weighty. Uh, but Lord, you do give grace to your people to do what you call them to do. So, so please give us that grace now. Help us to repent where we have fallen short. Help us to claim cleansing and forgiveness in the blood of Jesus. Help us to experience the transformation of your spirit that we might grow in this area and, and yet bear good fruit. Please make us a congregation of families that practice family discipleship who are intentional and active in communicating the truth of God to the next generation. And we pray again that every child connected to this church, uh, that they would walk with you all their lives. We pray this through Jesus our Lord. Amen.